Hi there and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Battling the Beast edition. It's Friday, May 13th, and my name is Sarah O'Donnell. I am the Journal's opinion page editor. Regular Press Gallery listeners will know that we skipped last week's episode so we could devote every ounce of energy that the newsroom had to covering Fort McMurray's wildfire. We're making up for that this week, I hope, because I am joined by some very special guests to talk about the fire which would Buffalo Fire Chief Darby Allen label the beast in the early days after the city was evacuated on May 3rd. So to help keep me anchored in today's episode, we've got Press Gallery stalwart Paula Simons here with us. Hello, Sarah. And we've got Lauren Motley, editor of the Edmonton Journal and the Edmonton Sun, and he's making his Press Gallery debut. This is very, very exciting. Thank you, sir. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> and I am extra happy to welcome uh, Fort McMurray Today's managing editor, Olivia Condon. Fort McMurray Today's staff have joined our newsroom while they are temporarily out of their Fort McMurray home. So welcome to the Press Gallery. Thank you very much. We are now in day 11 of Fort McMurray's mandatory evacuation. Olivia, I'm I'm hesitant to take you back there to last Tuesday, but can you just go over the chain of events about what happened? Just in case there's somebody listening who maybe didn't realize that Fort McMurray had been evacuated. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's it's sort of hard to put it into a timeline. I've been trying to do that uh, more and more, but it really happened so quickly. On Tuesday morning, actually, I, thanks to the people at Alberta Forestry, I was able to get up in a helicopter and take a look at, at sort of what was going on. Uh, and at that point, I didn't, I didn't expect it to get to where it did. To be honest with you, I, I we had been, you know, covering the fire for the past two days uh, since May first, and from what we knew, even though it had an official out of control status, we. I'd like to speak on behalf of the city, seem to think that it, it would be kept under control. Uh, and and I certainly never could have anticipated that it would have gotten to where it did. Uh, but everything really sort of started to unfold uh, in the early afternoon and then towards the late afternoon of uh, Tuesday, May 3rd. Um, thanks to, you know, a lot of people in the community uh, speaking back and forth to one another, we were able to, uh, my boyfriend and I were able to get into our house and grab some things, including our cats, uh, which was, which was certainly, you know, gave me some peace of mind. Uh, But we came back to the office, it took us about two and a half hours to get uptown. uh, And everyone in Fort McMurray, you know, knows that it takes about 15 minutes to get anywhere in the city. So almost three hours on the road back and forth was, was hellish. And, and uh, we could see the flames, you know, from the road, uh, at that point coming over uh, the hill on the west side of Highway 63. And so there was about 20 minutes from the time we got back to the office. Uh, and in the meantime, of course, Rob and Cullen and Vince were filing stories madly and, and getting their video footage online. And I really can't thank them enough for that. That dedication just shows a lot about that newsroom. Yeah, from the time we got back with our things and our cats, there was 20 minutes. It was very a very quick decision. Uh, we all decided to head out of town um, minutes after we got the mandatory evacuation notice uh, at about 3.30. And we said that we would meet in Anzac. Uh, and we each had our own vehicles. Um, so you can imagine the mayhem getting out of town. Uh, we all took the same route because there's one way in, one way out. Um, for the mandatory evacuation, we had been advised based on where we were in town to go north. Uh, but I think us, along with many other people in town, decided to go south because that's, I mean, we knew that we would be boxed in up north. Um, and so we headed south and, w- and we met in Anzac. It took about another hour and a half to get there. Um, and I've described the drive f- out s- from downtown Fort McMurray, where our office is on Manning Avenue, to 
to Anzac as through the seven levels of hell. It really was uh, terrifying. Um, seeing the flames on either side of the vehicle, hearing propane tanks explode, um, the heat, even with the, the windows closed, the heat coming off uh, of the fire that was 10 feet to my right and 20 feet to my left, um, was overwhelming really um a lot of it's a blur now looking back um but we made it out thankfully it was probably about 45 minutes to get out of town uh from the south end of of franklin and manning where we were and uh which again is normally a 10 minute drive exactly at at the very most yeah so uh, and on that drive, again, I can't say enough about the people of Fort McMurray and how calm and level-headed they remained. Um, again, it was stop-and-go traffic, and if anyone was as hysterical as I was, you have no control. You're trying to get out, but you're you're going maybe five kilometers an hour trying to get out of town. But everyone is, you know, stopping and waiting, and, you know, no one was being aggressive or, or butting out of turn. So uh, that really, you know, helped calm people as much as it could. Was that, that is everyone, astonishing. Yeah, and, and that's what everyone is saying, that it's it's unbelievable that people remain so calm in so much traffic but anyway so so we we made it to Anzac and and Vince keeps saying this and it really is remarkable that we all arrived in Anzac within four or five minutes of one another Uh, we all pulled over onto the side of the road and I've been journaling about this uh, since it all happened of course as a journalist and uh and it is remarkable that we met up but and then instantly we all got out of our cars we were all on our phones Cullen was cross-legged in the ditch on his laptop trying to get power trying to get any sort of uh internet connection that he might be able to find uh and and you know I um I was on the phone with Dave actually and he said talk to some people talk to whoever you can so instantly I hung up and I was the lines where it would be two hours to wait for gas there so uh there was people just stopped on the road and so I walked up to to people's windows we all did and got you know as many voice clips as we could from people who were you know fleeing and and in that moment I I was very thankful that my story of leaving was what it was we were really lucky to have been able to get out the way that we did and to be able to go home and grab some things uh, because a lot of people you know didn't know where their loved ones were hadn't been able to contact them the cell networks were so clogged that getting out a phone call was nearly impossible Um, and so you know you have people texting while they're driving because they've got people from all over the country calling them to make sure that they're okay Uh, and so that you know of course caused some issues as well but uh, thankfully, yeah, we were able to meet up and we continued to, to write stories and, and get quotes and, and what we could. Uh, the boys decided to stay in Anzac uh, and I made my way down to Lac La Biche, um, to to the EVAC center to uh, talk to some more people. And and yeah, so that was really the first six hours uh, after everything sort of happened. Uh, there, I mean, of course, there's so much more and so yeah. many more details. But I mean, you guys, I have to say you the Fort McMurray today did amazing work under absolutely unimaginable conditions so if if there's any of our listeners who haven't been watching the Fort McMurray Today's website I know we've been able to run some of your stories in the Journal and the Suns but I absolutely encourage everybody to go back check out that backlog of stories and those it's it's been a very impressive body of work considering what you've been going through thank you and and, and live while it was happening because I have to say I mean I was sitting here in the newsroom uh and I'm sort of our Twitter monster (laughs) so you know I'd I'd just taken part in a press conference about, you know, the way we run lab services in the province. That was going to be my column was going to be about, you know, restructuring Alberta's health labs. Uh, and suddenly... I don't think we ever I, got that column. No, you know, she, <laughs> no, she didn't get that column. Um, uh, suddenly, I'm, I'm seeing this Twitter traffic, and I started following all of the Fort McMurray Today reporters, and they were live-tweeting photos, I mean, that were heart-stopping. And then, as they evacuated... 
shooting on Twitter through Periscope a live feed of their evacuation where you could hear the flames. Mm -hmm. And it was, I mean, it was hard to believe that this was real because it felt like a thousand disaster movies that you've seen. Only this was your province. These were your friends and family. These were people, you know. And in the meantime, Sarah was on the phone to her family in Fort McMurray saying, "Um, no, no, you should leave now. Yes, yes, I, I was saying that. But, you know, and the, and those same moments that you were talking about, and then suddenly the cell network goes, you can't get, suddenly you can't reach them, and you're wondering, okay, what is their status? But they got out safely, and like you, they were lucky enough to get to go south. We, we should note that half the city basically got sent north. 25,000 people ended up in work camps, many of them for several days before they could safely be evacuated. So uh, it was quite the, quite the, process to get everybody back south again. Lauren, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show today is that, well, because of course, you know, you're the editor of paper, but you have experience with the southern Alberta floods. And I was wondering for you, what were those initial moments? Like, were there similarities or were they completely different disasters to watch unfold? Well, there's so many ways to look at this because when I heard Olivia telling her story, it reminded me, of course, two weeks ago of when it actually happened, but also how coverage of a story changes from our industry's point of view. And, you know, the whole idea of through social media and and Periscope and video and live tweets, we were really able to experience almost the Fort McMurray fires uh, with the people that were evacuating. And and, I mean, it really was amazing work by the Fort McMurray Today staff. Three years ago, back in the Southern Alberta floods, social media was uh, of course around and it was uh, but it's still developing not uh, it wasn't to the same extent uh, that it is now people now uh, I think have become far more comfortable with sharing absolutely everything that they do and as technology improves of course that's become easier the eyes th- that I bring I guess to the to the fires is is certainly was affected by how the 2013 floods, very similar in which almost chaos reigns for a period of time. Um, And uh, certainly during the floods, it happened very suddenly, uh, you know, and again with the fires, I would argue they also happened very suddenly. We knew there was a fire. Of course we did. We had our main headline in the the, the paper on Tuesday uh, morning was uh, around how the heat wave that we were experiencing was sparking, uh, you know, fire fears, right. safety fears, you know, drought. Extreme court, warnings, yeah. Extreme warnings. And back in 2013, uh, we were experiencing a lot of rains mm-hmm. and that there was some flood risks uh, in uh, some areas of southern Alberta. And I certainly remember uh, us covering... That's, you know, that story preamble almost to what actually happened. And but things happen very suddenly with nature. And I think the similarities of how things just change underfoot so uh, suddenly is really the only way I can I can put it. You have to be so prepared and and you almost can't be prepared for something like that. And uh, it's fascinating how to watch people react under the circumstances. Very similar, great uh, uh, 
acts of kindness and uh, uh, grace under pressure, you might say, um, uh, occurred in both instances, which is really heartening. I think you take that away uh, in both uh, both events. Yeah, Northern Alberta has really stepped up. I mean, the whole country Absolutely. has. Everyone stepped in, but I mean, the um, just to see you know people driving north with jerry cans full of gas in those very early days when people were stranded on the side of the highway before Alberta Transportation could get their fuel trucks going. I mean, that sort of thing was. And to see smaller communities like Labish, Athabasca, Boyle, Grasslands Absolutely. all stepping up to help, and to see First Nations opening, uh, you know, opening campsites on their reserve to allow people in uh, I mean I think that there was incredible leadership I mean I wrote a column that talked about the leadership of you know the, of the you know the, the leader of the opposition the premier but I think it must be said that all up and down highway 63 uh, there were extraordinary acts not just of generosity and courage but of organizational skill because you can't just say all right well we're going to open the bold center and people can come uh, you know people people put on their game faces and and made this happen at at every level we'll go into some of the government and leadership questions in a minute but are there any other personal moments that have have stood out for you Paula, you've you've been quite impressed with a certain fire chief, I must say. Well, no, I mean, you know, <laughs> apparently Darby Allen loves his wife Maria of thirty six <laughs> years, so he's not he's not on the market for me. But I think <laughs> I think I'm not the only person in Canada who who was uh, enchanted with the persona of of Darby Allen, Fort McMurray's fire chief, who became uh, he was assigned by the Alberta government to be the coordinator of emergency services on the ground in the first days of the fire. Uh, now. He's obviously a heck of a fire chief because he and his crews saved 90% of the city, and that's a miracle in and of itself. But I think it must also be said that he became, in this very funny way, a breakout star on social media because he would do these YouTube uh, hits, and he's from the Midlands of England, speaks in a very particular northern British accent, has a very kind of funny phlegmatic charm and and comes across really well on video which is an odd you know which is <laughs> it was not really a job requirement of being a fire chief uh but i think he was able to put across this reassuring calm demeanor that helped i think i can only imagine that it helped a lot of evacuees and i thought it was really quite tremendous too that yesterday afternoon when he stood down uh not only did he praise you know, his people and his staff for the incredible work that they had done. But he went out of his way to speak directly to evacuees, many of whom we know are extremely frustrated that they can't go back home right now. And he spoke to them, not in a condescending way, but in a very kind of Barbara Woodhouse trains your dogs kind of way <laughs> to explain to people, you can't come back. I know you want to come back. And, you know, I can write that in a column. And that's fine for some city girl from Edmonton to say that, but when Darby Allen said it, I think it had a gravitas and a moral authority and authenticity. And I think that we're going to miss hearing his voice. And I know he deserves this break and rebuilding is not his thing, but I, I think he's been an extraordinary leader, not just in the practical firefight on the ground, but in reassuring people of Fort McMurray that, that they're going to get to come home. Mm -hmm. Lauren, how about for you? Is there a person or a moment that has stood out? Well, you know, I was, you, when Paula was speaking there, she reminded me of, again, the 2013 floods, if I could. And, you know, each event seems to bring out the best in certain people. And in the in the Calgary floods or the Southern Alberta floods, it was Nehed Nenshi. 
and he exhibited the leadership skills, the oratory skills, the calming voice, the Twitter, um, uh, the tweets uh, that you know were shared and and uh, uh, gave you know voice to so many. <laughs> Didn't the city eventually demand he take a nap? <laughs> naps, well, yeah. naps for Nenshi. Right. Yes. So, you know, it's it's interesting to me when you compare Darby Allen, who I completely agree with Paula, is the face of this uh, episode of in northern Alberta history, just as Nahed Nenshi is really the face of the southern Alberta uh, uh, floods. And they, in similar fashion, you trust what they say, they communicate very well with direct language and they don't talk down to people. They talk to them and in a very calming, reassuring way, I think, uh, uh, allow us to uh, keep a real perspective on, on the event. And I know we're going to talk about leadership uh, yeah. in a bit, but I, I really think Darby Allen exhibited that that true leadership that people really seek um, in an event that has so much chaos going on. And Olivia, for you, is there is there is there a moment or a, a something that you think hasn't been told enough yet that that you think you're going to look back on and go, okay, that was pivotal or key? Well, I think that this will be something that the people from Fort McMurray do know and anyone who follows the uh, regional municipality of Wood Buffalo on, on Facebook or on Twitter, the updates that they were giving as far as mapping and very detailed descriptions uh, every morning, like May 4th at 4 a.m. they had what was lost by uh, by neighborhood. And that was very comforting for me. Uh, and, and I'm sure that that's the same for many other residents, uh, even if their homes were lost or, or they were unsure if their homes were lost, but they were from Beacon Hill and they saw that there was 80% loss in that community even knowing that that the municipality was doing everything in their possible power to get that information out to people is is something that I don't think should be forgotten it, it must have taken a lot of effort for them to get those maps together and uh, and to have those constant updates and and again they themselves are evacuees so so having to do that in under pressure and in that situation is is commendable yeah I mean I think it must be said that the people behind that Twitter feed all the way through yeah. you know uh, the voice of the Twitter feed, which was mm -hmm. also how people got to know about Darby Allen because they yeah. were tweeting out his his press conferences. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw Twitter at its very best in this last week and a half. We've also seen Twitter at its very, very worst. <laughs> we need to talk about the worst at this moment. But, but, yeah. but, but, you know, as a new form of media for news, for the, you know, the delivery of news and communication, uh, you know, Twitter really proved its mettle. It also, you know, it, the, then the, then come the trolls. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, won't let, we won't let them spoil our podcast. <laughs> what do you think then about the initial response to the crisis from the local leaders or provincial government? Because I, I, there, did they throw enough fast enough to, at at this fire? Uh, enough people and resources? I know there was much talk about oh they haven't declared a provincial state of emergency yet, but I think well. I think we all know you those of us in the room know that that's a very specific thing that's a that's typically an issue of funding and, and that sort of well, thing and, and not just funding but it's got to do with it's got to do with emergency powers mm -hmm. so there's absolutely in now that the smoke has settled and, and even in the heat of the moment there's been a lot of second guessing that they didn't have enough 
fire crews on the ground early enough that there were only, you know, 100 people, and why didn't they do something sooner? But if you actually go back and look that morning, and, and Olivia alluded to this, I mean, they, they did a briefing in which they said, we think we've got this, you know, more or less under control. We set up some good fire breaks last night. Uh, they were, you know, the, the, the briefing that they gave in the morning, they thought, not that it was under control, but that they were going to be able to ride herd on it. And then, um, you know, that, that sort of the end of that forestry briefing, they said, well, you know, it, but it'll, it'll depend on the weather. The winds picked up. The, the forest was literally tinder dry. And it's easy to say afterwards with the benefit of hindsight if they'd had more people. But as David Staples explained in a really excellent piece on the weekend, this is an extraordinarily difficult fire to fight. It is not a typical boreal fire. It is a fire so hot that it makes aspen trees, which some people call asbestos trees because they're supposed to be basically, you know, not flammable. It made aspen trees explode with giant bangs. Uh, I mean, this is something that, yes, maybe some wise forest expert guru might have predicted, but I think it's a bit unfair. Uh, I mean, this is my job to tell people what they did wrong after the fact, but mm -hmm. I think in this case, uh, it's difficult to fault the initial response. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I've seen people saying, Rachel Notley should be arrested, uh, you know, Rachel Notley should resign. And I think to myself, okay, well, except 90% of the city is saved. All of the major public infrastructure was saved. All of the plants that run the economy were saved. And no one died as a direct result of the fire. There was a terribly tragic car accident in which two young people were killed uh, in the course of the evacuation. But nobody, so far as we know, caught fire and burned to death. And so I think, you know, when we say, what did they do wrong? We can absolutely say maybe some things weren't flawless. Uh, maybe it took them too long to get gasoline to people stranded on the highway. Certainly the fact that there is one road out um, uh, suggests that there was not great planning over the last 20 years. The fact that there were not better fire breaks around the city means over the last 20 years there wasn't the best of planning. But I think in the moment, we can be pretty proud of the way the city was saved and mm -hmm. the people were saved. Yeah. Uh, what, what are you hearing from Fort McMurray residents now scattered, but mm -hmm. uh, about the, the initial reaction in early days? Are, are, they, are they still... Can they even think about that yet, do you think? Yeah, and that's, I was going to say that, that's the real question is, is I think for most of us, myself included, it's still quite a bit of a blur. And uh, I was lucky enough to have a half a tank of gas and to be able to make it to Lac La Biche without having, you know, getting stranded on the side of the road. Um, but I think that it's a tough question, it yeah. is, because, you know, people are of course frustrated with the entire situation and so that causes anger and they're they're pointing their fingers right to try to find blame just you know to help themselves sleep at night and I completely understand that it, it's it's difficult to to find a way to explain all of this mm -hmm. and so uh, whether it's uh, it's anger at, at Rachel Notley or whether it's anger at the municipality or or what what have you um there are people who are, are trying to find, you know, people to blame and, and anger is coming from that. But I think for the most part, the people are, are just very thankful that that um, the municipality and the province uh, has done what they have done to 
to show almost immediate response to um, our current needs. Um, it took a couple of days, you know, for the province to step in. But in those two days, it was everyone was so all over the place and running around and, you know, our heads were out of our bodies. So it was it wasn't easy to um, to sort of look at it as, well, what is the province doing for us? Because we were all so concerned about ourselves. Right. And you making know, sure your friends and family. Were exactly. Safe, that exactly. So staff, that didn't yeah. even really cross my mind until I made it here to Edmonton and started actually getting back into the routine of, of editing and, and, and my job uh, that I noticed that, you know, there are people who are angry, but there are also people who, you know, are just happy to be alive and have their pets and their families with them. Laura and the NDP have been dealing with a budget crisis. Basically, it's since they got into office a year ago it seems like with the oil prices falling and uh, this is the premier notley and her cabinet's first i guess disaster test uh, since coming to office i mean we we kick these things around on the editorial board but how do you, you think she's handled it so far maybe compared to other premiers and other disasters well i think you'd have a hard time criticizing rachel notley how she's handled this crisis she was very deft in which she took a role communication-wise in that those first initial days of, of the fires, of, you know, where, where it really was uh, national news. Where, But there were other communicators there, Darby Allen being one of them, but there was many, um, uh, many experts at the table. Um, she was not first and forefront. She waited until the tide was turning. Uh, to actually take a, a more leading role, you might say, on the ground, uh, escorting the media on uh, into Fort McMurray, the first kind of, um, you know, let's say, on-the-scene look uh, there. She, um, I think as a leader, really uh, was very smart to do exactly what how she handled that. Um, even uh, I think Brian Jean would have a hard time, and he, of course, he lost uh, his home um, during the, the the fires. I think he would have a hard time criticizing the initial response of the Alberta government, specifically. Um, these stories, uh, of that, as I've come to learn over the years, have an initial feel-good factor, uh, and I think we're in that space right now. Um, I think we're going to see that change. We are seeing a little bit of the angst and the anger start to emerge now among the evacuees, which is understandable. Remember, these are people's homes. This is their primary asset in life. They are thankful. They they uh, escaped uh, unscathed. Um, but I think it's uh, the next number of weeks will prove challenging for the government. This is, you know, we've seen this play out again through the Southern Alberta floods in particular. Slave Lake would be another good example in 2011. Um, and how you deal with people and their, um, and their primary asset uh, in life is really going to be how she's judged, uh, I think, in the coming, coming weeks. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think a lot of, I, mean, I think Lauren's absolutely right. I think that she has handled this thing uh, deftly was his word for it. I mean, I think that Rachel Notley struck exactly the right sweet spot. She went up right away, got the aerial tour, but didn't insert herself. And I think a lot of people fail to understand it is not the job of the premier of the province to fight the fire or to, or to make the micromanagement shots about fighting the fire. You leave that to the experts. You appoint the people 
uh, most of whom are frankly the people who are still left over. I shouldn't say left over. Most of most of whom are still frankly the people who have the experience from Slave Lake and from the floods. Uh, so she didn't get in the way of the experts. It's not her job to say bring in this vintage water bomber or bring in you know bombers from Russia. That is not the premier's role. I think she's done her role, which is to provide the direction and support, and then to be the public face and the communicator, because. Uh, I think the daily briefings that she's been doing, which have been carried live on CBC Radio, um, have been uh, very well handled. I think she struck just the right note of not sounding despairing, but not sounding falsely optimistic. I, I think she's. I think her tone has been precisely right. And I think most of the criticism initially wasn't coming from evacuees at all. It was coming from people who just hate Rachel Notley reflexively. I will say, on the other hand, I've seen a lot of commentary on social media and uh, and in my inbox from people who write to me and say, I'm not a Democrat, didn't vote for her, never liked her, have been so impressed with the way that she's handled this. Uh, you know, I think she's won a lot of respect from people for her full-throated defense of the oil, in the oil industry up there um, and for the sort of, I think, the quite measured... Uh, sensible way she's handled things in the last I, I, th week. I would just say politics gets put aside initially in, mm -hmm. in, in situations initially, yes. like, like this. It, but it is initial because I do think, um, and we, again, referring to the floods, yeah. this does play out very politically. And this will be the number one issue facing okay. this government okay. for the rest of this year. I got to say, at first, in those very early days, I thought, why are we not hearing some specific promises from the government? I, I was someone who felt that way. I felt like after the floods, right away, you know, people were told, we will rebuild your homes, you will get these debit cards. And in those very early days, the premier was saying, we've got your back. But there weren't specific promises. And, and I now, in retrospect, I think, oh, that was smart because they made sure that the plan was in place first and then they said okay debit cards are coming now here are the specifics and so i, I think that they've been doing a trying not to over promise and under deliver which i think in maybe previous disasters there have been over promises and and failures to deliver on those you know you can go back into 2013 again and 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 understand today in 2016 there are hundreds of unsettled claims around the 2013 flood and uh, this government has inherited that from the previous uh, administrations. There's been, you know, for instance, there's been six municipal affairs ministers since the 2013 floods. Um, and <laughs> <Wow>. so <laughs> I think, I, wow. I think understanding that alone and the, what a new voice and how that, and there's been insurance companies that have come and gone, um, it, it gives you the scale of what we're going to look at. I think the, the difference here, though, and this is this is a godsend for the people of Fort McMurray and frankly, for the government floods, no insurance. So the mm. province, the province had to make a very difficult political choice. Are you going to give millionaires who lost their fabulous mansions on the river replacement cost of their fabulous mansions on the river? Uh, are you going to replace the millionaires golf course uh, in Fort McMurray? Most not all apartment owners have fire insurance I mean they ought to but not a, not every renter does but homeowners have fire insurance I mean mm -hmm. it's almost impossible to get a mortgage without right know, I mean, I mean it, so slight, so you're so you're right not, you know that's a good point there is a distinction there, between those gonna, two there's going to be a huge difference I mean the province mm -hmm. is still going to be on the hook for lots of rebuilding money but it's not going to be quite like the floods and I don't think it's going to create the kind of resentment 
that in a lot of people in northern Alberta had about the money that went to southern Alberta, you know, as, as subsidies to people who arguably didn't really need subsidies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in Fort McMurray, it's going to be a less politically messy affair because it's going to be the private insurers who are going to be on the hook for billions and they are not going to be happy about it. So coming days, what will you what will you be watching for? Olivia, let's let's start with you. What are what are your, some of the boxes or what what do you want to see information come forward about? I think that I, I can speak for all evacuees when I say that um, our main concern right now is is uh, knowing when we can go home, right? And and not only that, but also knowing what to expect when we can go home. And uh, I think that I've seen a lot of people on social media, actually a lot of people who, who survived the Slave Lake fires, giving their advice and, and trying to help the people of Fort McMurray as best as they can, saying, well, this is what you can expect when you're allowed back in, right? You'll need duct tape for your fridge and you're going to need to do all of these things, right? And so I think that that's something moving forward that I would certainly like to know um, sooner rather than later uh, is the plan of reentry, and and I know that that's of course in their uh, in their sights, but um, I haven't really had any any information either on insurance claims for people whose homes were not burnt uh, to the ground. I I do have renters insurance that covers for fire, but I I'm worried to be honest with you about water damage uh, mm-hmm. because my home, as we were speaking earlier, Sarah was on uh, sort of just on the outskirts of Cornwall Drive, uh, and I've got the Birchwood Trails right across from me that thankfully were saved. But uh, the smoke, I mean, that I inhaled, I was coughing for a couple of days afterwards, so I can only imagine uh, what's going on in the house and and the bombers that were dropping water over those communities to save them as much as they can. We live in a basement suite, so uh, Darby Allen had said too well you know if your basement's flooded I mean what are you going to do right I think if you've got a flooded basement right in the big scheme of things Mm -hmm. it's not a big deal but my home is a basement (laughs) yes so well and we know that I mean flooded basements can be very very damaging exactly exactly so So, yeah in the coming days I would certainly like to know a little more about uh, about insurance and how that process is going to work and I don't think that's something that's been touched on too much Mm. and that's maybe something that service Alberta that's right. They need to be need stepping to be, up. Need to be stepping up. Yeah. And I think for, for renters too, because we've heard horror stories about, you know, people whose landlords are saying, well, you you know, you have a lease agreement, you have to keep paying the rent. Um, so I think, I think there is an important role for Service Alberta to step up and say, okay, these are, these are the rules of engagement for, for landlords, for insurers, for, and for tenants and for homeowners. Mm-hmm. How about the dynamic between the local government and the provincial government moving forward and maybe even the federal government as well. well. I, I, where I was going to say is that what I'll be watching for is how, how the communication really, this becomes a communication exercise for the next, uh, couple of weeks. I'm going to say, um, there, the reality of letting everybody back into Fort McMurray is not a reality for a little while, but letting people know what the fate of their home is, how that is communicated back to them. Do they organize bus tours like they did in High River where one family member could get on a bus, they take you through the neighborhood, you get to see uh, what the state of your property Just was. to answer some questions. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Because again, people's angst and anxiety around their own homes, let alone the community, is really what they're thinking about. They'll understand not uh, being able to go back in, I think, for a little while, just given the the sheer scale of what has to happen. There's so many things in a community that have to occur. I mean, we're hearing this morning about a building of a field hospital in which it's a brand new hospital that's being erected 
um, because they obviously can't sanitize or get the original, you know, the, the main hospital operational because there's lots of things that go into operating a hospital. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's the water, the water treatment plant, the policing, the, the, the 911 service. And they save so much of the infrastructure in Fort McMurray and that's tremendous. You just don't flick that switch back on. Yeah, and they've said so, even checking like infrastructure like the bridge because the fire got awfully close to the bridge. Right. And yeah, I think yeah, people yeah, people yeah. will understand yeah. that around around the operation of a city. Mm-hmm. But I do think letting people know as much as they can reasonably about their own property, I think will at least uh tone down let's say the rhetoric or and tone down the anxiety i think that's probably the the key thing in this we've seen it play out differently again in the floods we've seen it play out differently in slave lake but i hope that the learnings out of those is how they communicate. Yeah, there, there are two other challenges. You know, when Lauren's talking about bus tours, the problem is, A, there are 88,000 people. It's a lot more people than lived in High River. And it's a four-and-a-half-hour drive up the highway mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, a 30-minute jaunt from downtown Calgary. So it's, uh, it is a trickier thing. But you were asking about the relations between the provincial and the municipal government. Yeah. I went to my first ever regional municipality of Wood Buffalo City Council meeting and Olivia <laughs> wished me joy as I set out. Um, I was going, frankly, I think our editors expected that I would do sort of a charming color piece about wasn't it lovely that Edmonton City Council was lending City Hall to Fort McMurray's uh, city Council. Yeah, and let's just say yeah. it is it lovely. Is, it, it is lovely. Let's put it that is out lovely. there. Let it, it is, it I'm is not lovely. sure I was expecting anything <laughs> lovely. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what I was not expecting, I mean, I knew that Fort McMurray, and I should say, it's, it's not, it's, there's Fort McMurray, and then there are also councillors from the communities that surround because it's a, a municipal The region district. of municipality yeah. of Wood Buffalo, yeah. yes. Yeah, so I knew that people would be frustrated that they wouldn't be able to get back home. I knew that people would be frustrated um, just because they were tired and exhausted and stressed. What I hadn't banked on was the degree of animus that uh, the Fort McMurray councillors seemed to feel towards the provincial government for even existing. Uh, They were saying things like, you know, we don't want any provincial help. We want to do all the rebuilding ourselves. They're very angry that people from outside Fort McMurray are there now doing the inspections and doing the initial uh, reclamation work. they weren't just angry that they weren't being given a timeline for re-entry, but they basically, you know, there was this really, I don't think I'd quite appreciated the degree of isolationism uh, and, and a real fear that they had lost control of their own community. And we talked earlier about what a state of emergency means, and people don't understand a state of emergency doesn't just mean it's really bad, and a state of emergency doesn't just mean we'll get money from another level of government. The state of emergency, it's like a war, it's like a war measure, right? It, it gives the province the legal authority to go in and do things that they would normally not be able to do, whether those are things that are temporary violations of, of, of people's charter rights and civil liberties. I mean, they can garnish your stuff, they can press you into service, and they are running Fort McMurray. And so a lot of people on that council were very angry and I, and I think felt emasculated by the fact that the province was running things. But that's what you have to do in the state of emergency. The state of emergency lasts 28 days. It's a legislative thing. Uh, it will, the state of emergency will lift and Fort McMurray will get to control its own destiny. But I had not anticipated from counselors and from evacuees the degree of anger that is longstanding. They're not just angry about Rachel Notley this week. People were saying things like, you know, the province has never been there for us. 
that, you know, our infrastructure needs have been ignored by the federal and provincial government for decades. You know, why are they, you know, why should we trust them now when they haven't been there for us five years ago and 10 years ago? Do you think some of that was a function that, I mean, one of the challenges with this crisis was that the city itself was divided. The mayor, Melissa Blake, in those very early days was sent north. She wasn't at the emergency operations center because she couldn't be. She got evacuated north with her family. And counselors also were spread all out. This was the first time they were together. So do you you think that that played some function in that feeling of frustration? I think so. I think it did for sure. Um, And I think that I think that the isolationism that you were speaking of, too, is something that that the council has quite a bit of pride in. Uh, And and of course, the city that they're that they're so proud that they've built up. And uh, I think some of it comes down to the fact that uh, Melissa Blake seems to have quite a a fantastic handle on all of this. And of course, she's remained uh, very cool and, and calm and collected about it. And I think that some of the animosity towards her from the councillors uh, is because they don't think that she's doing enough uh, as far as her relations go with the province um, to have all of their questions answered. Uh, but for her, I think she sees the bigger picture, and I don't know if all of the councillors do. She was like a symphony conductor at that meeting. I mean, I had tremendous respect for the way she ran a very difficult meeting. And I have to say, it's the first time I've seen Danielle Larravee, the Minister of Municipal Affairs, really in action in, you know, I covered when she did the mental health review, about which I was, you'll recall, highly critical. Not a a fan. Not a fan. But she handled herself at that meeting, I thought, extremely well. She never got flustered. She never lost her cool. Um, She and her staff uh, very calmly briefed the city councillors, answered their questions. Uh, She was clear and direct. She didn't obfuscate with bureaucratic language. And I thought in a very difficult situation, she showed... uh, you know, a leadership ability that I'd not had the chance to witness before. So I think in her real test, because as as Lord says, she's only been municipal affairs minister for a very short period of time. Uh, I thought she comported herself really well in very trying circumstances. You know, I was wondering whether, you know, some of the angst and some of the, you know, anger, you might say, that was happening at the at the uh, council level from Fort McMurray is almost historic because, Fort McMurray has been in the national eye for some time, as we know, and, and I'm going to say the international eye, and it's, and it's not necessarily uh, with a good reputation. And a little unfair, you would say, but... I would it, say, it, yes. It, it, yes. But it's there. Yes. And uh, I remember uh, I was up in Fort McMurray, it's been a long time, nine years ago now, and for a tour of the oil sands and spent some time in Fort McMurray and uh, sending reporters up to talk about the social problems of, of Fort McMurray. And there, there were a number, lack of recreation facilities, lack of, let's say, basic infrastructure. Schools were bursting at the seams. And I wonder if some of that still plays out in, if you're living there, of not ever getting the true attention of either the province oh. uh, or the nation, an unfair rap mm-hmm. uh, by many. And I could see that underpinning some of, of maybe how, if I was uh, in political office there, how I view the world. Yeah, and I think that, that is absolutely mm. what, I mean, that's, that's just the read I got from the counselors. That was what they were actually, that's what they were actually saying. You know, let it be said that, I didn't grow up in Fort McMurray, but my dad had the first law practice there. We used to have a cabinet like Gregoire. I used to spend a lot of 
time in the summers and the winters in Fort McMurray, you know, sleeping at the Peter Pond and the caravan. And the, <laughs> Aren't you lucky? Know. Yes. But my dad used to own the caravan. I'm not sure I should say that in a way that people can hear. Um, uh, and so I've always had a soft spot for Fort McMurray. It's got a place in my heart. And the amount of just bile vitriol dumped on the city in the immediate aftermath of the fire. I had somebody write to me and say, well, you know, 90% of Canada was cheering for the fire. If, if people from McMurray have a chip on their shoulder about outsiders, it's understandable. It's mm-hmm. one of the things that has made the city so resilient. But I think they are going to have to put aside pride and decades of peak and accept the fact that we cannot rebuild this one city can't do it by themselves. They are going to have to say, we're going to need help from the rest of Canada and the province. And if that helps other Canadians to feel less crappy about Fort McMurray, maybe that's a good thing. We have gone way long this week. Normally our, our half hour show is, but this has been a really, this has been a very good conversation. So thank you very much. Normally at the end of every episode, we do a good stuff from the gallery segment. That's where we share something notable that we think other political wonks would love. I was just wondering, quick suggestions about everybody's favorite story from wildfires, perhaps piece of journalism or moment or YouTube clip or anything like that. I'm happy to start. I would absolutely recommend that people read, um, go back. It was, we, we published this in last Saturday's insights section, but it was a story by Dan Barnes and the headline was, it will get better. And it was about talking to Slave Lake survivors, reaching out to Fort McMurray evacuates and, and telling them a little bit about what these next few weeks are going to be like. And for me, I took great comfort in that story. So I'm going to recommend if you didn't get a chance to read it, go check it out. And uh, yes, that's where I will put my recommendation. Paula? All right. Well, I've already mentioned David Staples' really excellent piece about the science of the fire, which is my secondary choice. But I think that if you need also to read something that after this couple of weeks of horrible things, you would like to read something a little more comforting and charming. You must read the piece on the CBC website that rejoices in the headline, Flatulent Fainting... I have to get this right. Flatulent Fainting Goats (laughs) Flee Fort McMurray in Ford, um, which is a story about uh, an acreage owner... I don't think you need to say any more. Everything's in the headline. It's sort of, you know, an acreage owner whose granddaughter loved her fainting goats, and so they loaded the fainting goats in the truck in the cab with them and drove down the highway. It's kind of like Heidi meets... um, Disaster, yeah. <laughs> Heidi, Heidi meets Monty Python. It's, <laughs> it is so funny. I read it out loud to my family last night, and, um, and my daughter said, can we get a fainting goat? And oh. I said, no, that was not the takeaway <laughs> from this. <laughs> Lauren, do you have something that you've, you've spotted that you well, would it, recommend? It's still to come. It's the uh, tomorrow's uh, uh, paper. We'll be uh, carrying a, a long narrative uh, via our friends at the National Post that we've also been imp- inputting into uh, out of this newsroom, uh, a narrative of the, the journey of the story from the beginning to today. And I think that's, uh, I've, I've had have glimpses of it and I I think that's going to be well worth uh, picking up the paper for tomorrow. Great. And Olivia, why don't you wrap up? Uh, well, I mean, I've been trying to keep things as positive as, as humanly possible. So uh, if that means trying to stay away from, you know, the more politically fueled articles that I'm coming across, I do. Uh, I, I really have found comfort, though, in, in the people who are, are are putting everything, including their own safety aside, to uh, rescue animals. Mm-hmm. And there's this one gentleman, I can't remember his name now, um, but uh, he's part of the uh, Everything Goes Controversial Humor, Fort McMurray. And uh, there was one home that he went into. So 
people in Fort McMurray have money to spend and, and sometimes that means buying ridiculous pets uh, and so this one gentleman went into a home uh, and saved a bearded dragon and a, a really large corn snake and uh, he had a, an irrational fear of snakes <laughs> and he he started the video outside of his truck and he was standing outside and both of the doors were open he said so I've picked up someone's corn snake and then he goes to the container where the corn snake should be held in his truck and it's gone oh no and he <laughs> says it's somewhere in my truck I'm not getting back in until I find this <laughs> And and that and it made me belly laugh, right? It gave oh, me a good fantastic. laugh. And okay. so there's many stories like that of people, you know, doing everything they can to save people's loved ones, including pets. So, so we'll throw all those links up uh, on on our website. Everyone loves their own corn snake, oh. right? <laughs> so that is it for this week. Thank you so much, Laura and Paula and Olivia, for joining me. And thank you to videographer Greg Southam, who's been here standing here through our extra long conversation. <laughs> when, thank you, when, Greg. When, when he's the one who went, you know, unlike yeah. unlike me who stayed here, Greg was actually up in Fort McMurray. Well, in in where. Blackwish. Blackwish. So, uh, Greg, thanks to Greg's work, we'll share some segments online at edmontonjournal.com. You can hear previous episodes of the podcast at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or through the journal SoundCloud feed. The show is also on iTunes and TuneIn Radio, so, so you can subscribe, and the press gallery will be there when the new episode is ready to go. Thank you for listening. We will be back, almost certainly, next week in the press gallery, and I suspect it'll be another week of talking about Fort McMurray's wildfire. Thanks. Thanks.